Hey everybody, this is Pete Peterson. You're listening to the Finns Revolution Podcast. So we just finished up part one of The Fiddler's Gun, and what we're going to do today is have kind of a bonus episode. I just thought it would be really fun to invite somebody else into the conversation. So joining me today is Shajay Clark, who is works with us here at The Rabbit Room, and she's a poet and a writer and a, an avid reader, and she's got great literary taste, uh, which is proven by the fact that she just finished reading The Fiddler's Gun not too long ago. Say hi, Shajay. Hello. <laughs> so she's in the studio with me today, and I just thought it would be fun to talk with her as somebody who's just read the book for the first time, and uh, maybe just discuss a few things about this first part of the book that readers might be asking about or have in their minds, mm-hmm. and just see where the conversation goes. So, that said, where should we start? Well, I just want to say first that I'm super excited to be here, and thank you for letting me come You're to talk welcome. to you about this, because I really did love the book, which seems a little bit awkward to say now since you said how great my literary tastes are <laughs> but i well, really love the Gun. clearly are very great i yes. mean obviously yes. they're just glorious yeah. i mean and anyone listening to this is going to know that because they've just listened to everything <laughs> right. up until this point so i'm not saying anything that they don't know but seriously i'm excited to get to talk about it a little bit so all right thank you so one of the things that i wanted to ask was because you said on your podcast that th- this is the first time you've listened to this in 10 years right yeah, that so, you've read it, I mean. Right. We're listening to it. You're reading it. Right. So the book came out in 2009. Mm-hmm. And like, as I, like I said in the introduction, um, you know, a, an author spends years, you know, in the case of this book, I think I started writing it in about 2000, 2001. So it took about eight years for the story to develop and be written and then to finally find its way into publication. So that's a long time to spend with a book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reality is when you get to the end of that process, you're kind of sick of it. And the last thing in the world I want to read is more of me, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so, you, you know, the release comes and you, you hope people like it and you put it away and you kind of forget about it. And over the course of the last decade, I just noticed, like, when I would go out to events and things, people would ask me, hey, why did you do this with that character or this character? And uh, there were times when I just literally couldn't remember because Mm -hmm. it had been so long since I read the book. And so when I realized it was the 10th anniversary, I just thought, maybe this is a good chance to reread my own books and, one, refresh uh, my memory on what happens because it's hard to remember. But, two... Uh, just to actually kind of, I know that I've grown a lot as a writer in the last 10 years, and I wanted to go back and see if I still liked what I had written. Hmm. So that was what, that's how we ended up here in this podcast right now. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's really exciting. So like, what was that experience like reading it after so long and coming back to see it with fresh eyes? Yeah, it's, um, it's humbling and encouraging. And okay. so I think there are um, <laughs> like the, I, there's no way around the fact that when I read it, I recognize how young I was as a writer then, mm-hmm. and there are sentences and passages and edits that I want to make, and I, I want to rewrite things 
you know, but ultimately it's out there and, and I've been pleased that I have not been embarrassed by it. Hmm. So that's been nice. And there have actually been times just in reading it so far where I've, I've, I've like gotten to the end of a chapter. I'm like, oh man, what's going to happen? Like, I literally <laughs> don't remember. I have vague ideas of where the story goes, but I've kind of forgotten what happens to certain characters. And so I feel like I'm invested in it. And I feel like if it's that, if that's the case, then, you know, the book is, it, it's uh, doing its work and that's yeah. good. Yeah, that no, that's awesome to get to come back and read it from a reader's eyes instead of like right from a writer's eyes, right. which is impossible <laughs> when you've just finished writing it. Right. I know that we've had conversations along the way of like for, for with different authors. It hasn't just been you, but different authors have told me like your first book is always your worst book because you yeah hopefully are growing as an <laughs> right. author and a person and, and getting Lee. better. Unless you're Harper Lee. <laughs> right. Well, you know, we can't all be Harper Lee. <laughs> but so it's always interesting to me to hear from authors about what they think of their first book and ways that they would have changed it or done things differently. Yeah. Um, because there's kind of that understanding of, of what first yeah. books are like. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's very true. I feel like this book is... it's not, I don't, I, At the moment, I feel pretty good about it, but mm-hmm. I don't. it's certainly not my best work. Um, which I see as an encouraging thing because, I, like I said, I've grown. Uh, but also just there's a lot of things I would have done differently. Uh, and it's just that you, I've learned through the process uh, that if I went back and did it today, like with the Apocrypha kind of chapter yeah. that, that I just read, yeah. um, I feel like I don't know that I would have cut that today. Okay, so I was going to um, ask about that because, like, I just listened to the Apocrypha recently and I really enjoyed it. And yeah. I was wondering, like, why was this cut? Like, I could come up yeah. with reasons in my own head, but I'm really interested in, like, what, what your reasons were for leaving yeah. that out. Well, I think I made the right decision. Okay. Uh, early on, I was having a hard time getting uh, publishers or agents interested in the book. And, you know, if that's your experience when you're trying to sell a book, the first thing you should do is go and look at your first chapter. Because if people aren't making it through the first chapter, then mm-hmm. that's a problem. And I think like that that chapter, is, while it's very much me, almost more me than some of those early chapters in the published book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was just a little. It was too dense, too uh, uh, literary, maybe in some ways, than uh, what the subject matter of the book was calling for, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what a publisher, how a publisher knew how to handle it. So like a publisher's looking at a book and they're like, okay, it's it's got a young girl. She starts out as she's ten years old, twelve years old, or something. Uh, this is a young adult book, you know, for young kids. And so when I immediately start talking about the the Protestant Reformation and you know Catholics murdering Protestants and all this kind of stuff, it's like this doesn't belong here. Mm. And so like I think I made the right decision by scrapping that and writing the first chapter that I did. And I think the first chapter or the beginning, as it's called, is really strong and it's a really great hook and everybody loves it and it gets people into the story. However, what I threw out was that apocryphal chapter. Which, one, set up a lot of the historical sort of uh, uh, flavor of what was going on, which I've gotten no end of questions about since. (laughs) And it's always frustrated me, but I'm like, oh, but I wrote about that. You're like, I did write that piece, though. Yeah, yeah, but then I cut it. But then the other thing is, like, when I look back, I realize that a lot of my writing since is much more like that apocrypha. Mm. Um, And so I think if if I did it all over again, knowing what I know now... I would write a first chapter that's a hybrid of the two in some ways. Okay. Um, and I would be less concerned with trying to write for 
publication mm. uh, in that like I was very clearly trying to get this book sold at the time and that meant I had to make it palatable to like a specific market you know slice right. so that a publisher would understand this is where this book goes and I don't care about those things anymore like I'm way more interested in writing the book that I want to write yeah um, which doesn't mean I don't care about my audience it, but it does mean I'm less concerned about making it fit a particular market niche right and so I think I would have found a way to keep some of that um, while also tightening it so that it did the work of the first chapter that was actually published. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It really does. Because I could see, I'd love to see someday, hopefully you do it, I'd love to see what that hybrid looks like because I was really struck in listening to the Apocrypha about kind of the what each one offers you. So yeah. the beginning that you're talking about um, is the part with Finn's dad, right? Right. Um, and that whole introduction of her and her family. And that, I feel like, immediately connects you to the character. Like, right. you immediately feel for Finn. You know where she's come from. You know who she is. And But conversely, listening to the Apocrypha immediately connects you to the setting and all of the right. characters around her. Like, I felt right. like I really know where we are. I really understand everything that's happening in the time and the place. Right. And, and I would love to see what... Yeah. getting both of those at once would right. feel like. You and know a, what I mean? And a better writer could have done that. <laughs> but the point, the problem is, like, you know, 10 years ago, I was not the better writer. Hmm. So, you know, so I ended up taking... And, it, it you know, the Apocrypha thing wasn't book... wasn't chapter one. It was, like, a combination of the two. Like, that beginning section was just way longer. Yeah. And that was the problem. And I think you can get all that across in, in a more succinct way. And um, anyway, I'm happy with how it turned out. I wouldn't... Yeah. I let it stand as it is. But I'll also say that I feel like that what that apocryphal chapter does is initially this story was much less historical fiction and more of something like historical fantasy. Like mm. this, the story that was in my mind when I wrote those first drafts, which if and all this has basically been edited out now, uh, there were things um, supernatural that happened. Like there was, there was a really? scene, you know, later in the book where you know, Finn was on a ship and the ship was beginning to sink and like a giant manta ray comes and props the ship up and, and its wings are on the other side of the ship and it's kind of like burying them across the ocean. So that kind of thing was part of the story that I was writing. And uh, again, because I was not uh, a good enough writer at the time, I couldn't figure out the right way to mix those kind of elements with the, the more purely historical sort of adventure that was going on. And so all that got edited out. And mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of that is still, or some of that's still reflected in that apocryphal chapter. You know, the way the children refer to the orphanage as the castle. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's just like this more storybook flavor to what's going on because I was trying to set up something that was a, that was historical but not quite our world. Gotcha. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm happy that all that got edited out. I think it was all for the best of the book. But it's also been really fun, and we can talk about this in maybe a later bonus episode. But when we get to things like that I've written since, like the uh, timely arrival of Barnabas Bede and the Oracle of Philadelphia, yes. um, all that stuff is coming back. And so I'm, I'm enjoying reinfusing that world with kind of the original flavor that I think that it had. When you say all of that stuff, you mean like the fantastical element yeah, or the more sense of the of literary? Almost, not, I don't know if magical realism is the right sense, but mm -hmm. it's it's... I mean, maybe historical fantasy that that invokes all sorts of images of like swords and sorcerers, and that's not what I mean. But I think if if you if, if anybody's read the timely arrival of Barnabas Bede, I think you'll immediately understand what I mean. Hmm. And uh, that's all I'll say about that at the moment. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> gonna have to wait for another time for that. But yeah. I am glad that we have like 
the Apocrypha and those extra pieces that we can listen to now. Right. Because I feel like that does like make the story more robust and it feeds into well, it. I'm glad you enjoyed it and yeah. didn't think like, oh, this didn't belong. <laughs> no, I was yeah. like, I'm so glad to have this extra piece to because I really connected to like you're talking about the castle and as a little kid that's really what life is like. Right. So I felt really connected to the orphans and the orphanage. Right. Which I won't talk about how that affects the rest of the book, but it really okay. is helpful. <laughs> um Oh, I had a question about um, the historical fiction element, but I totally lost it. Is it about how historically inaccurate <laughs> the book is? <laughs> no, yeah, I guess like that is something I want to know because like I have never I've read historical fiction before, but it's never been something that really grabbed me, right. and I really this one did. You know, I yeah. really enjoyed this book and the fact that it was couched in the Revolutionary War and, and actual history didn't pull me out of the story at all, right. which is something that I've experienced before. Um, and especially at the end of part one. So if whoever's listening to this has just finished the end of part one, it's just like like a punch in the gut. It's crazy. <laughs> like it yeah. came out like this craziness came out of nowhere and I love it so much. So I'm really interested to know how much of this is historical as yeah. opposed to like you just talked about fantasy being right. you know something that had been well, your original intent so i've read you know enough historical fiction to know that i'm not a historical fiction writer mm-hmm. like i love a good historical fiction tale but um like i think one of the things that marks historical fiction is like a, a really uh strict eye for detail and accuracy hmm. and that has never been what i was interested in with this story like what I was trying, what 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 I, the reason I was interested in setting it in the past was not because I wanted to recreate the past. It was because I wanted the flavor of that past mm. in the same way that I enjoy the flavor of A Count of Monte Cristo or The Three Musketeers or, you know, Treasure Island, those kind of things. And those are not, I would argue, those are not historical fiction. You know, they're essentially contemporary fiction that were written in, in their time. Yeah. Um, and, but they're not specifically trying to recreate events of the past. They're just stories that happen to take place in this particular flavor of, uh, of a historical period. And so that was what I was after. So, you know, as I started writing it, I really quickly, you know, realized, well, I can't just make everything up. You know, I've got to <laughs> at least try. <laughs> uh, but, but I wasn't interested in the, in the super detailed kind of thing that mm. a lot of historical fiction does. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of okay with that. But then it also became interesting to me, and I've been thinking about this a lot again lately, how one of the things that really uh, turns my imagination on is the idea of the mysterious um, way in which fiction merges with fact hmm. as it recedes, as, as reality recedes into the past. Uh, slowly we begin to lose touch with the facts and they become mingled with um, fiction, right? Yeah. Uh, so as far back as, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad, you know, yes, those are fantasy stories, but there is fiction mixed in, you know, we don't know where one begins and the other ends. It's really clear, it's really easy to say, well, obviously, like, you know, Apollo didn't exist and didn't come down and tell the guy this. But it's not as easy to say, oh, um, like Menelaus and and Helen were never married and were never real people. Right. Right. And so that's fascinating to me. I think it, it opens up all sorts of great story ideas. And you know, Tolkien was inter- interested in the same kind of idea. So I was interested in what would an American version of that look like? And so, you know, as I started looking back into history um, at the American Revolution, 
you know, I got fascinated with the, the fact that there were already these kind of folkloric stories happening mm-hmm. that w- we couldn't tell if they were real or not. And one of those was the Georgia War Woman. The story was about this woman who had invited six British soldiers in for dinner and then killed them all. Wow. I think in the story, she killed like one of them and held the rest at gunpoint till her, till her husband got home, and then she hung the rest in her backyard. Wow. Uh, but then there's not a whole lot of verification of it, so nobody really agrees on whether or not it's, it's uh, folklore or fact. And I was immediately interested in that. Like, yeah. you know, this idea that even in the last 200 years, we begin to lose touch with what's real and what's not. And so, you know, I thought a lot about that in the context of this story, and, and I thought, It'd be really interesting if 200 years from now, if, you know, some kid's sitting in a classroom and says, hey, so is Finn Button a real person? (laughs) (laughs) You know, one answer could be, of course not. This is historical or this is just fiction. But then if a person went and actually tried to answer that factually by looking at the evidence, could they find enough evidence to support the fact that she might have been real? Right. And that I loved. So that was why I started basing things on real events and in real places. So, you know, I drove up, I found out pretty quickly. This is actually an interesting story. Yeah. When I started writing, I immediately knew I wanted to write about an orphan. Um, for reasons we can get into later if you want. Okay. But uh, just out of the blue, I said, okay, let's put, let's put the orphanage in Savannah, and uh, I'll have it run by a group of Catholic nuns. Um, and then started writing those first early chapters, you know, in their first drafts. And pretty quickly realized, you know what, I, I need to go do some research to see if orphanages were <laughs> even a thing back then. Oh, And yeah. were they run by Catholics? I had no idea. This is the danger of writing in a historical time. <laughs> right, right. It's like, you yeah. can't just say, sure, orphanages were a thing, right, like, because I say so. Been, yeah. Right? So I uh, did some research, and it turned out, miraculously, that the first orphanage in America was in Savannah, Georgia, just outside in Ebenezer. Wait, okay, so you had already decided to put... I decided to set it in Savannah, Georgia. Yes, and that just happened to be. It just the case? happened. It That's was crazy. really. It was an eerie moment. <laughs> it was really eerie. So yeah, just outside of Savannah and Ebene- New Ebenezer uh, was the, America's first orphanage, which was founded by uh, Protestant Salzburgers who had immigrated from Germany or Austria now, and uh, yeah. So a lot of people still to this day we're like well these how you say that they're catholic because it's sister so and so but then they're clearly protestant so mm. you, your facts are way off and i'm like well no i don't think so i think <laughs> <laughs> in this instance i think they're right you know like you know they, they weren't catholic but if you've grown up in the south like i did when you went to church you called everybody sister catherine sister mary you know brother bob you know so that was just the honorific that we gave everybody that we went to church with yeah and so i kind of appropriated that um because that's just what people have done for a long time and so i think people who aren't from the south who aren't from that kind of culture think as soon as they see sister in front of somebody's name that i'm talking about a nun yeah even though i'm not at this point so you know i'm okay with being under misunderstood like that but um (laughs) that's got me thinking about like i especially with historical fiction or things um, based in history, I always wonder how much research had to go into Mm -hmm. writing this thing. You know, so like what kind of research did you have to do? Like you're talking about hoop skirts and wagons and (laughs) it just seems like so much that you would have to look up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I still, I just, the wealth of information that I feel like you would need to have to be, as accurate as possible, even while yeah. being allowed to fudge things a little bit, um, yeah, just well, feels overwhelming to me. So, like, what does that look like? Well, it can be overwhelming. 
But I'm a, I'm very much I am much more a tactile, visual, experiential learner mm. than I am a book learner. Yeah. And so research for me looked like getting in the car and driving to Ebenezer, Georgia, and nice. walking around the the property and looking at the orphanage and looking at the river and visiting these sites and talking to people. Or uh, down south, where I was living at the time, there were uh, Civil War reenactments all the time. So I could go to these things and feel how a cannon felt, you know, and pick up a, a blunderbuss and get it in my hand. And, you know, even though, you know, I'm talking Revolutionary War, they still had flintlocks and stuff that they're, they're using at these uh, reenactments. So that was really helpful. But then, like, specifically in the case of uh, the fiddle, um, I had written... You know the the first chapter, I guess, of Bartimaeus trying to teach Finn how to play the fiddle. Right. And I don't play any instruments. I'm not a musician. I have no musical bones in my entire body. <laughs> uh, and so it occurred to me if that I, if I'm setting off on this course to write a book about a fiddle player and which music is going to be a big component of the mm-hmm. book, then I probably need to know a little bit more about it just to be able to write effectively. And so my way of doing that was going well. Uh, I guess I'll build a fiddle. And so I found. What? What? <laughs> I'm sorry. This is how I, my brain works. Yeah. No way. Yeah. So so I found plans for what was called a folk fiddle. So a, a typical violin has a belly and a back, like it's a carved, three dimensional, curved kind of a shape. Uh, but a folk fiddle is more like a guitar. It's flat. Okay. Um, and it's still curved around the edges, like the, the it's still shaped like a guitar in its contour, but it's not bulging on the front and back. If right. That makes sense. Uh, so it's a little bit easier to build. So I spent, you know, three or six months, I guess, um, figuring out how to do this. And I ma- managed to build a working fiddle that I could play. And I gave it to a fiddle player. And I was what? like, you know, how does this work? And he was he played it for a few minutes. He's like, yeah, it's, it's not bad. It does what it's supposed to do. So it actually works. Like, you didn't just carve a fiddle. You made an actual functioning fiddle. Yeah, it's fiddle. a playable fiddle. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and then I built the case that it goes in, you know, so I could carry it around. And, like, when I'm just, you know, talking about... Finn's got to carry this thing around and do things with it. Like, I, I know exactly the dimensions of this thing that I'm talking about, um, which we'll actually, we should talk about in a, in a later right. episode. I have a question that I'm not, I can't <laughs> ask yet <laughs> yeah, because well, I finished the first book, but I'm not going to ask the question. Yeah, so, so there, there are many, many questions. I feel like people who just know what a fiddle case looks like, mm-hmm. there are probably points in the book where they're like, wait a minute. She can't do that with a fiddle case. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, yeah, if I could show you a picture of this one. You know that it's different. <laughs> right, it's very different. Wait, so does the fiddle case that you made also have the place for the blunderbuss in it? Yeah, so I custom made it. So I found, you know, a, a replica of a Spanish blunderbuss that I based. You didn't make the blunderbuss? I did not make the blunderbuss, <laughs> and it does not fire. But uh, oh. yeah, so I built into the case like a, a place for Betsy. So so she's there too, which is actually funny when I go on school visits sometimes, you know, I always take the, the case along because it's a good show and tell item. Oh, but yeah. then you know, as soon as I get to the school, I go straight to the office. And I'm like, hey, I just want you guys to know I've got a gun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And I, right? <laughs> Wait, please tell me you don't say it that way. <laughs> like, I do. And it's always gone over really well. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't come up and go i'm here for like i'm here for a show and tell i have a non-functioning like replica of a weapon you come up and go i just want you guys to know i have a gun Uh, well that's obviously the next thing that i say (laughs) if they give you a chance it's always gone really well so it's then yeah people are really nice so they come out to meet me and they're like what's that and i'm like oh well this is a fiddle case and just so you know 
So it's never been awkward. I hope that's how you introduce it to the kids as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, What you guys need to know, the first thing you guys need to know is that I have a gun. Yeah, yeah. But also a fiddle, and and if anyone can play it, it's playable. Right, right. That's amazing. Yeah, so that's how my research is, like most of it. And obviously, thank God for Wikipedia and all the links that it leads you to. You know, it's it's more... It, writers have it easy these days when mm. it's, with when they have to do research. Uh, I've very rarely had to go to an actual library <laughs> to to find a book to learn anything. Yeah. So kind of on that note, one of the things that really struck me it <laughs> was w- when Bartimaeus is teaching Finn how to play the fiddle. Mm. Like I thought I knew that you weren't a musician and had to like re-question that in my mind. And wanted to come back and ask you, yeah. like, have you secretly been a musician this whole time and I didn't know? Because, you know, the I have fe- tried. Oh yeah, and failed. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I mean, I, I I took piano lessons when I was a kid. Okay, and was a terrible piano player. And I uh, took guitar lessons and had a guitar for a long time. And I was a terrible guitar player. Mm. So like, I know what it's like to try to play an instrument. Mm-hmm. And to try to learn an instrument, but I don't know what it's like to succeed. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I'm with Finn to a point on this journey, and then it just has to be... Absolutely, yeah. Well, but the sense of, like, turning, you know, the whole theme of turning pain into beauty, and that aspect of, like, I just felt like that was really captured, and seemed to... It definitely resonated with me... And it seemed to really call to the, this person must be a musician because they they seem to understand this to mm-hmm. such a deep. So where did that come from? Like that ability to really connect with a sense of turning pain into beauty. If yeah. you're not a musician, not being a musician yourself, you know. Well, well I think that applies to um, any art form. Mm-hmm. Like if you know, I'm a. I hesitate to call myself a poet, but because that's not what I aspire to do you called me a poet and you're and yeah. you're just as much a poet as i am you're a much better more. poet than i am <laughs> but like you know i do out. write poetry and like you know what is poetry if it's not trying to turn something uh mundane if not painful into something beautiful right mm. or to make sense of something and by making sense of it to make it uh something you can more easily grapple with and you know i think that's what drives musicians to to musish. <laughs> <laughs> to musish. I want to oh, use that. You're welcome to use that. Thank you. Please don't credit me, though. <laughs> no, no trademark, Pete Peterson. <laughs> uh, I'm just yeah. going to tag that on to every time I use it. Pete Peterson told me I could say this. <laughs> but that's what drives, I think, the creation of a lot of things mm-hmm. is like br- trying to bring order into chaos or trying to bring order out of chaos. Yeah. And I think that's what God calls us to do as well. So it's a natural outworking of that. And as a writer, you know, that when I started writing the book, it was a very lonely time in my life when I had lots of questions and no answers. So that's part of my own story is like, how do I take this stuff that I've got in here and make something beautiful out of it? And, you know, these books are what came out of that. That's amazing. You were talking about the Georgia War Woman, yep. which is super interesting to me because I... Okay, so I loved I loved the whole part one, right? But I was hooked after the end. I was, like, completely blown away by that. And it took a turn that I was not expecting. Like, I knew that something had to happen yep. in the story because it seems like it's about to all be tied up in a nice little bow and there's still, like, three quarters right. of the book to go. <laughs> so I'm like, well, something's going to happen. But that was not something that, that I expected. Yeah. And it's this really 
you know, churning, powerful moment. And I, but I did wonder kind of in the back of my mind after having read it, like, is this realistic? Would one, you know, person have been able to do this, you know, and knowing that it's based in an actual historical story is... Well, you know, one of the amazing things about the truth is there are so many stories out there that are true that if you tried to tell them as fiction, nobody would believe it. Yeah, you know, yeah, like uh, you know, I don't. I could get into examples, but we don't need to do that. <laughs> but the point is, like something like this, it seems to have happened. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, and really early in the book, like in the first couple of chapters, was when I discovered that story and knew that was where I was going. And so I knew if that was where I was going, it, I had to, um, I had to build the the ramp up to that in a way that it would not merely be shocking physically, but right. would be emotionally cathartic somehow like mm-hmm. it had to mean more yes. than just oh i've killed six soldiers yeah and so that's why it takes the books that long to get there because if that's going to propel the rest of the story it's got to it's got to get your hooks it's hooked into you yeah absolutely um but yeah i tried to write it i thought a lot about it like how in the world would a young girl or, or a woman like kill six people in a room mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and i tried to write it in a way that i felt like was realistic um and 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 when I started breaking it apart into its like component details, I realized that is not outside the realm of possibility. Right. Like there were six to begin with. She kills the one guy silently in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And then she has Betsy. She come out and, and a blunderbuss is like a shotgun. Like it shoots stuff all over the place. So when she shoots that, it takes out three more. Mm. Um, so then that's four people. There's only two people left in the room. All she's got to do is run and get the gun. Right. And... You know, so there you yeah. have it. And I was like, wow, that was easier than I thought it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, like logistically, it's actually viable. It, it does make sense, yeah. And which... emotionally, too, because like, you're talking about emotionally. And one of the things I appreciated about the scene was that, like, I felt like, like you know, with the character backed into a corner. Like, this is the only thing yeah. that I can do in this moment. Right, because if it's not, then she becomes the villain. Right, exactly. Right. But you don't feel like it's obviously horrific and and you're so upset, but you also are like, I totally understand that right. this this is how you felt compelled. Like this was the only thing that you could do. Yeah, and that was really just powerful to me. So that's awesome. Yeah, and 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 it's so much more powerful to me knowing that it's based on an actual story of yeah. a person that existed. If they did, because yeah. like you're saying, yeah. it, you know, the line between folklore and history right. can be wavy. And sometimes. that was one of the things that I love about the whole story. Actually, is like. As we see, as we go through the rest of the story over this book and the next, um, Finn gets herself herself into a lot of situations Mm -hmm. that seem crazy for a young girl. Um, But all of them have really happened. Like, they haven't all happened to the same person, (laughs) you know. But there is nothing that happens in these books, I don't think, that hasn't happened to somebody. Uh, and that was really important to me. Yeah. So, like, you know, as I as she goes on from here, and she, I'm not spoiling anything to say that she ends <laughs> up on a ship. You know, lots lots of people come back and they're like, "How's a how's a girl on a ship?" Mm-hmm. I mean, that's going to be a problem once a month. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't know, but historically, it was a thing, right? You know, and it wasn't even just once or twice. Like, it's pretty common to find these stories of women who disguised themselves and were sailors for years at a time. So I don't know. I'm not interested in exploring the mechanics right. of that, but. You know, it's not just something that I'm making up. It's like it's it's part of the weird way that the world works. Yeah, yeah. I actually really appreciated that about the story, and I won't go t- into much specifics going forward. But hopefully, it's something that we can talk about 
down the line because, you, as you know, I was in the army, and every book I've read that's been like, oh, girl, you know, sort of in this in this guy centric, you know, um, scenario, feels the need to explain all of the logistics of how <laughs> she got away with that. Right, and I really understand I, it's just yeah. it's not as hard as everyone yeah i mean I, I was never like pretending to be a guy but at the right. same at the same time neither was finn you know right. It, right. it's just not as difficult like i just don't think it's as complicated as people make it out to be so yeah. i appreciate it and that it's not definitely being not as interesting <laughs> as the actual story <laughs> right so, like, that's between just, the characters i never as a writer never even thought about mm. it really i was just like, you know, like we're just going with this and people can figure it out as they go yeah um I think if your story is compelling enough, people will forgive those kind of gaps. If and, the, if they are gaps in the first yeah, place. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, I remembered the question that I was thinking about earlier because you were talking about a niche market, right? Like, right. And writing now to not so much concerned about fitting into that mm-hmm. um, and it not being an aspect of you not caring about your audience. You mentioned something like that. And my thought on that was well, while I was reading through this and I have, you know, a... a 14 year old niece who um well she's like my adopted niece i love her but she just read it as well and she felt the same way i did quite separately we talked about it later as far as this being a book that we both connected with because it wasn't in a niche market right that we were used to right, right. so usually you have like books for girls and books for young yeah. adults and books for you know yeah. people who like adventure why can't we have just have books right right and yeah. and the fact that this spans so many of those usual marketable you know yeah um and that categories was, that was, was something that really made it compelling i feel like well i'm glad to hear you say that because that was part of what made it so so hard to sell initially is that and now i am a publisher i run a publishing house mm-hmm. and i understand exactly why i got the answers that i did uh, it doesn't mean i agree with them mm-hmm. it means I, I i commiserate right because like i understand that when you're going to release a book uh, to make it worth its while, it's got to sell this many copies, and in order to do that, you got to get it into bookstores and into audience hands, and you've got to be able to really easily communicate who this book is for and who's going to like it. Yeah. And so I get that this was a hard one for publishers to get their heads around, mm-hmm. you know, because it's you know, the, the answer that I was would always get was, well, it's a it's a girl's book because the girl is a, uh, is the protagonist. Because if it's about a girl, then right. it must be a girl's. Therefore, book. boys aren't going to read it apparently. <laughs> And, but uh, it's actually a boy's book because it's about adventure and pirates. <laughs> therefore, girls aren't going to read it. Um, Neither of these statements are true, right. right? But like somehow in publishing, they've become you know unspoken rules in mm-hmm. some ways. And so this book was right in the line between those. And it was also spanning the, the, the distance between um, young adult or children's and very adult. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, mm-hmm. she starts out very young. And you can read that first chapter and think, oh, well, this might be a kid's book that my eight-year-old can read. And then mm-hmm. you don't have to get too far to, re- to realize that's not true. <laughs> Maybe not. Right? And she's going to grow up and deal with some very, very serious issues. Right. And it's going to be a dark, violent book that I think is ends in a place that anybody would be happy to get to. But you got to go through the stuff first. Right. And, like, like my argument is Count of Monte Cristo, right? I'm not saying that I've written a new classic or anything. Like, I certainly have not. Don't hear that. But, like, shouldn't that book be what we're aspiring to? Right. And that's how I feel. Like, if I'm going to sit down and put the years and the blood, sweat, and mm-hmm. tears into writing something, I'm going to try to write something uh, that that is uh, trying to mimic the great books that I've read and that right. have formed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I would... I'm not afraid to do that in a way that the market uh, finds confusing. Yeah. And I think because 
you're not afraid to do that because you're willing to write for that reason, you are going to reach people. You certainly did with me, and I know other people that this was true of as well, that are not being reached by that, you know, yeah. by that marketability categorization. Right. You right. Know? And it um, cuts some out, too. You know, I, I often hear people saying, yeah, I didn't read this book for years because I don't like pirate stories. And I, then when they re- read it, they're like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite book ever. Yeah. I'm like, well... You know, maybe, I kind maybe, of had don't, the experience. maybe don't think of it as a pirate story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of had that same experience because you have no idea how much the cards were stacked against you <laughs> with this book. Because usually I'm that person who's like, I'm not down for historical fiction. I don't really like pirate stories. But having read other books in the rabbit room and trusting like the excellence of that you guys write your stories with, I was like, okay, I'm going to try this out. And have yeah. not, I've not regretted that at all because there's so many, first of all, it's about the story, right? It's not yeah. about, I just wanted to write about pirates or I just wanted to write about the Revolutionary War. You have yeah. characters in a story that you care about. And for me, and like I just said, people that I know, like it was a story that spoke to a lot of things and let different things connect that um, aren't usually allowed to connect in, you know, a book for marketability's sake. Yeah. So I appreciate it for that reason. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all the time that we've got. So <gasps> thank you, Shijay. You're that, very welcome. I'm glad to have been here. Yeah, that was really fun. So <laughs> we will be back with another bonus episode after part two is over, which will be at the end of the Fiddler's Gun book. And then we'll, we'll do some other bonus episodes as we go forward into Fiddler's Green. So thank you guys for listening.